Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, your pastor asked me if I wouldn't speak on uh, some scientific subjects and uh, I showed a very long face when he mentioned AIDS that uh, he thought it would be a good idea. So, uh, the subject makes me uh, rather feel like vomiting to speak about because it really is an awful subject. And after worshipping such as you have been doing now, uh, to turn to this is a bit of an anticlimax. And yet, it's the reality in which we live. And outside in the world, you don't live in an atmosphere of worship such as you might do here. Now, I've got to do it just after you've produced an atmosphere like that, and it's rather hard to do. What I'll do is read two or three scriptures out for you, which will uh, bring us back to uh, the harsh reality of the world round about us, so that you might be able to help those many, many people who are going to die. There's, uh, the disease is 100% lethal uh, within a very short time, to be precise. It's over 90% lethal in uh, cases where full-blown AIDS symptoms have broken out within three years. 90, just over 90% of the people will have died within three years of noting the symptoms coming up. And it's horrible there. Now, I've got to describe all that to you in a place that's not used to uh, talking about such disgusting details, but I'll have to do it. So, let's get our Bibles ready, and I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 1, just a few verses. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. You know this chapter very well. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, and the God he's talking about here is the God that is manifested since the creation became manifested. That is, the study of the creation, that is the study of science, because science is a study of the creation and its natural laws. Since that has happened, says the few verses, say the few verses just in front of this, God has manifested in the creation his invisible, omnipotent deity. And he says that not all men have seen the scriptures, but they have seen the creation, and therefore they've seen the invisible God in the visible creation. That's the message of the foregoing verses. So he's talking to people who have seen God in the creation just by looking at it. Not being told about it, but by looking at it without a language. That is, the study of science is really the study of the invisible God by means of that which is visible in the creation round about us. And I don't believe in creation science myself because I think that all science is creation science. Any other science that's not, that is not science. And I think that's a very true generalization to make. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God after they'd seen him, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base mind. That is, if you refuse to exercise your intellect in deduction, that is, seeing nature, and in nature seeing the creation behind it, if you refuse to use your mind for that, that is, if you either blankly say, I won't, or I don't care, one of the two, either or both, he says he'd give you up to a base mind. A mind that's not capable of being noble. And when you listen to and see some things on the television among the people who rule over us, you just wonder about this base mind, you know, or what's going on, don't you? <laughs> I did the other night, I happened to see something, and that was enough for me. Um, gave them up to a base mind, and then to improper conduct. I don't think I've done anything improper, he said, after he'd been lobbying and all the rest of it, uh, to an improper conduct coming from the base mind. They were filled with all manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Now, we've been through two world wars, and Vietnam as well, and Korea as well, and we know what ruthlessness means. Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve those who practice them. So, uh, God gives them up to receive the due penalty for their error, as it says in verse 27. Just read 27. Uh, and the men... Oh, I'll read from 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchange natural relationships for unnatural. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, this is uh, homosexuality, of course, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. The error was refusing to exercise their minds in recognizing the fact of God to be seen in the creation. That was the first thing. And then the second thing was to put it out of their minds, and then they're given up. And the dishonorable passions, sexual passions, uh, are traced down in this passage from that point. Now, I'd just like to read to you two little passages from the Old Testament because they're quite vital ones. Um, one is, is in Moses, first Mo Genesis uh, 19. I'm sorry, they call it in other languages the first book of Moses. I'm sorry. And my gears sometimes slip, you know. Where my, that is, my computer sometimes puts the wrong program in 
and translates the concepts in a way it shouldn't do so. So if I do, you'll, um, you will have mercy on me and you'll be very pitiful, and, uh, won't you? Okay. Right. Verses 1 to 11. This is all important. I need it all because I've got some horrible medical stuff to talk to you about tonight. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and this is Genesis 19, 1 to 11. Genesis 19, 1 to 11. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face to the earth, oriental hospitality and honor. And he said, My lords, turn aside, I pray you, to your servant's house, and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early, and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the street. But he urged them, did Lot, strongly. So they did turn aside to him, and entered his house, and he made them a feast, and he baked unleavened bread, and they ate unleavened bread. He knew who they were. Angels, you see, shouldn't eat leavened bread. And they ate, but before they lay down, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, notice how this is emphasized, all the people to the last man, the whole shooting match, all the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded Lot's house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Now, that is a direct request, command, for homosexual relationships. They wanted the men, and these were the men of the city, young and old, turned out and asked him to deliver his guests for sexual abuse that night. Lot went out to the door to the men, shut the door after him, shut the door after him, Notice these little details put in. They'd have stormed the house, these people, you know. They were aggressive. And he said, I beg you, my brothers, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. What sort of a father was that? And you know, he was Abraham's nephew, wasn't he? He knew the right thing to do. But you see, he voluntarily lived for the sake of money and prosperity in the wrong place. That was his trouble. He voluntarily lived in the wrong place and sat in the door, in the gate of the city, as a judge in the city. He needn't have done it. But he did. And he wanted to deliver his own daughters to that. Think of that. And what's more, his own daughters were engaged already. Think of that. Because he had his future sons-in-laws in the city and tried to, rec- to, to rescue them. Yet he was willing to do that. You see, this is what religious people can think to 
if they choose the wrong environment. And that's what he done. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. That would be an offense against oriental hospitality. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow, Lot, came here to sojourn. Now he would play the judge. He wants to rule here. Very bad thing for a Christian person to try to rule in Sodom. And you can interpret Sodom just as you like. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Shut up. We'll de- deal worse with you than with them. Aggressive. Aggressive aggression written all over them. Now we will deal worse with them than with you. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot. They started to manhandle him. They've got the aggressiveness again. They pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door. The men put forth their hands, the angels, and they brought Lot into the house to them and shut the door. If those men hadn't arrested Lot, they'd have manhandled him as they wanted to manhandle the angels. So the angels saved him. And they struck um, and brought into the house them and shut the door. And they, the angels, struck with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves groping for the door. That is, they lost their old sense of orientation, having been given up due to the effect of their manner of life on their brains, on their minds. Now, just a short one from Deuteronomy, and it's in Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, here we find a lovely little promise. And the Lord, Deuteronomy 7, verse 15. Deuteronomy 7, verse 15. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness, none of the evil diseases of Egypt which you knew when they were there in Egypt and now they changed their environment. None of the evil diseases of Egypt which you knew, knew will he inflict upon you, but he will lay them upon all those who hate you. Now, that'll be enough for that. And then there's Leviticus 20. Leviticus 20. Leviticus 20. There we are. There we've got uh, a specific little matter. Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination and they shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a wife and a mother, it is also wickedness. Verse 15, if a man lies with a beast, he shall be put to death and you shall kill the beast. 
And if a woman approaches any beast to lie with it, you shall kill the woman and the beast, and they shall be put to death, and their blood is upon them. Now we ask thee, Lord Jesus, to open our minds to these hard things, the hard realities of the pleasant envi- present environment in which we live. We ask thee to give us wisdom and maturity and purity to talk about these things as thou wouldst have us talk about them and wouldst have us listen to them. Give us wisdom and grace to be a light in this dark place that we may be able to, to serve thee effectively. Amen. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's this little question of the AIDS epidemic. Uh, we are right in the middle of it, and we'll start uh, on the whole subject right away. Now, AIDS means, of course, the acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Now, what that means is simply this, that the AIDS virus has an affinity for the defense system which we have against uh, invaders of our own bodies. If uh, a bacterium or foreign protein or anything like that gets into our systems, Uh, say a bacterium gets in and starts to multiply, we've got to do something about it because it's an ideal medium for any parasite to multiply in the body. You think of all the juices and how nice you would taste fried, you see, and uh, uh, just offering that to a bacterium is like offering ice cream to uh, an Englishman, you see, American ice cream. It's just what the doctor ordered. And unless you can find a means of preventing the multiplication of foreign organisms in the body, the body would be taken over immediately because it's a juicy morsel. Now, there is therefore in the body, in the lymphatic system, there's, in other places too, a, a system of cells called lymphocytes, and particularly the T4 lymphocytes, the helper uh, lymphocytes, which attack and engulf living invaders, and another system which neutralizes foreign proteins which get into the body to uh, get rid of them so that they don't upset us. Now, the whole system of defense is enormously complex. We're capable of defending ourselves against almost anything. The body has a look look at it when it comes in and uh, makes an antibody to it and neutralizes it that way. So it's the defense system of the body to keep itself free of invaders. And the AIDS virus attacks just that defense system. Now that's why it's called AIDS. But in recent years, no, it's in recent months, it's been found out that that's only one side of the activity 
of the AIDS virus. The AIDS virus not only attacks the immune system, which keeps us immune from invaders, it also, and this is not being brought out sufficiently, it also attacks to a far larger extent in percentage measure the neurons of the brain and other parts of the nervous system. It's called, therefore, the AIDS virus, lymphotropic, that is, it attacks the lymph system, which is the immune system, or part of it, and it also attacks the neurons, and is called, therefore, neurotropic. Now, when it attacks the neurotropic, when it works neurotropically, and attacks the neurons in the brain, there are signs that it's starting to do that quite early. And it seems, and this is not quite sure yet, it seems that there are certain strains of AIDS which go for the brain, and certain strains, it seems, go for the nervous system. When it's the nervous system, the person getting it will have a slight tremor in his hand, and he'll be unable to do uh, exact muscular operations because his nervous system is being attacked by this virus. Uh, in about 20 to 30 percent of the infections go over to the immune system and 60 to 70 percent go over apparently to the neurons. And they make a dementia. That is, they make a person, uh, what shall I say, uh, demented. Uh, it attacks the brain so that a person becomes more and more vegetable and is unable to think or do anything that a human being uh, should be able to do because his nervous system is being attacked from inside. Now, both these types of AIDS are known. In former years, in fact, until about September 1987, the neurotropic type of AIDS was not classed as AIDS. It was called ARC, AIDS-Related Complex. And until then, a person who was dying of, say, dementia, because the virus had attacked his brain and his nervous system, was not classified as having died of AIDS. He did die, but he wasn't classified as being an AIDS patient. So, the health authorities here woke up to that first, first in the world to do it, and they then asked the doctors to be very careful that if they were sure it was the AIDS virus, whether it was neurotropic or lymphotropic, it must be classified as AIDS. So that you get a sudden jump in the AIDS figures after September of last year, because all the American doctors, when they knew that somebody had gotten a, the, the second type of attack of AIDS, when they knew it was AIDS, they could classify it as AIDS. Otherwise, you had to go through the whole rigmarole and prove that it was AIDS with all sorts of complicated texts before you sent in your report that you got an AIDS patient who had died of AIDS. Now, that's the first thing. So, really, today, to call it AIDS is a misnomer. Uh, 
AIDS and ARC together, yes. But we just want a name which will signify that it's the HIV virus, you see, human immune virus which is working, but we want something to replace the immune because when it goes in the brain, it doesn't attack the immune system like it does the brain. So really, HIV is also a, a, a poor name. Now let's just have a look at the history of this so that we can get uh, clear about it. There are some cases in the literature in England, in uh, the Lancet and the British Medical Journal, about 1960, where they had two or three homosexual men uh, dying of symptoms which nobody could place and diagnose. And when AIDS was found out to be AIDS in 1983, 1981 and then 1983, uh, people looking through the old literature recognized that disease which was described but not diagnosed in those days because nobody knew what was going wrong. So one has started to look for old samples of frozen blood from 1960s onwards to find if the AIDS virus was in those old samples of blood. And of course, it has been found. So it came over, uh, started to work about 1960, 1970, and then in 1981, the disease was recognized as AIDS. And in 1983, it was Luc Montagnier who... Um, recognized the virus and isolated it at the Pasteur Institute in Paris. And then Robert Gallo, six to nine months later, he recognized it and isolated the same virus. Now, he called it LAV, which is lymphoadenotrophic virus. And the others called it HTLV, which is human T-cell lymphotropic retrovirus. Now, you see, they all have the same figure about it, that they attack the immune system. Now, it has probably uh, started even well before 1916. Because if you look at the figures and the spread of the AIDS virus in Africa, then you find that there's a huge amount of AIDS in the populations in Central Africa. Now, the remarkable thing is that the AIDS in Central Africa has very little to do with homosexuality. They're not homosexual there. Uh, here, and in Europe, it has been a disease which is uh, coupled with homosexuality. The important thing to recognize is this that the disease is primarily, primarily not the disease of homosexuality. Primarily not. Because you get it on a larger scale in Africa where they're heterosexual. So that's the first thing. And of course the homosexuals here are very pleased to uh, point out that they're not the culprits because... Uh, in other countries, you get it where there's no homosexuality. And, of course, they're right. The real trouble is, it is associated, and always associated, with promiscuity. That's where the shoe doesn't fit. 
it's in promiscuity, that is the continual and casual changing of sexual partners, whether they're homosexual or heterosexual, is not really important. That's what really does the damage because the method of infection is most effective when you get the exchange of body fluids. And if you get a direct exchange of body fluids, that'll pass on the disease. Once you've got the virus, and then you exchange body fluids, then you'll get the disease passed on. Now, the breakdown of family life in Africa, the tribal life, the family life was a tribal life with them, and they were very, very strict in their sex taboos. Uh, the breakdown of that by migrant workers going to South Africa, say, to work in the gold mines and being away from their families a long time, six months to a year and things like that, broke up the old tribal relationships so that sex became free. And with sex becoming free and casual, once the virus was there, it was passed on like wildfire. Now, with regard to the situation here, you must remember that in one evening, one night, you will get in homosexual circumstances, in homosexual uh, circumstances, yes, you will get, say, up to 10 to 15 often anonymous sexual contacts in one evening, one night. Uh, that is with the exchange of uh, sexual fluids. Now, if that happens, of course, if just one of them's done it, one of them's infected, then it'll go on to dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens the more you have casual partners with whom you've had relationships. Now, the Africans are doing that by the breakup of the family. We've done it in the first place by the huge promiscuity practiced in general by uh, homosexuals and uh, it's the promiscuity which is the real basic cause of the trouble. Now that means this, that basically the cause of the disease is ideological. You see, formerly the basis of society was without doubt the family. The family, you see, father and mother and the kids, and they were the unit, and father was the priest, and mother was the mother of the family, and the result was they were units. Now, if you break down that unit, and father goes anywhere, and mother swaps with anyone, uh, and the kids too, uh, the result is that if there is a virus around, then you will get the passage of any virus of this type uh, passed on with the devastating consequence that it has. Now, that brings with it the second point that if the disease has been passed on once it's there by the breakdown of family relationships, if the breakdown of family relationships has brought the disease with it, then, of course, our permissive society is the cause. Now, many people recognize that fact. There are many doctors, 
many health experts that recognize that basic fact that the real trouble is once the virus is there, then the breakdown of family relationships is the Pandora's box which is opened thereby and once you've opened it, you can't close it again. How did it arise in the first place? Well, that all depends where you are, what one says. The real answer is nobody knows. But there are lots of suspicions going around. What's the cause of the trouble? Uh, the most common rumour about the origin of the AIDS virus is that it's often present in the green monkey. Now, they pass on a rumour that a green monkey bit somebody in his rearward portions, you see, and uh, passed it on that way. Now, I don't know, I think that's a bit far-fetched. But they do keep certain types of monkeys for sexual abuse. Uh, it may have passed on that way, abusing sexually a monkey that has it, in which the virus is not toxic, is not lethal. But when you change the host, the host organism for the virus, you very often do get uh, lethality uh, coming out by that change. Now, that may be the case. If you go to Russia, go to the eastern countries, and you must remember we live on the borders of the eastern countries in Switzerland, they all say this, Oh, no, 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 no. This is the result of the biological warfare which the Americans are uh, trying out and uh, unfortunately it escaped from the lab with the consequences uh, such as they are today. That's what they say there. I'm only passing on this information. Uh, I say this. Now look, let's be sensible. The retrovirus of AIDS is in the present state of technology far too complicated for us to have done a little trick like that. I don't think that that is at all serious. Uh, but you'll find that doctors and professors coming from the East will tell you that with all seriousness. Now, you've only got to talk to them ten minutes and show what the state of the art is and perhaps you can convince them sometimes you can't. Now, the remarkable fact that's emerged recently is this, that anything in the West which has connected the AIDS virus with homosexuality has been forcibly suppressed. For example, the first name for this disease of AIDS was called G-R-I-D. Some of the doctors produced it in San Francisco area when they found certain homosexual men suffering from Kaposi's sarcoma and thrush and herpes virus and certain other diseases, tuberculosis as well, which were related to homosexuality. So they called it gay related syndrome, a gay-related immune disease or deficiency, gay-related immune deficiency, GRID. Now, that was the first name they gave to this virus, but as soon as it became gay-related and was coupled to 
the male choice for males, there was an immediate outcry and a lobby against it. So the name was quietly dropped. And so all the other names that have been produced which relate it to being gay, that is homosexual, have all been forcibly uh, suppressed due to the fact that it's regarded as discriminating against homosexuals. Well, I don't think so myself. I think that if it is related that way, why not be able to say it? I mean, it's a scientific fact. It is related in those circumstances. And personally, I believe that it's related. You should be able to say so. I think I'm being discriminated against if I'm not allowed to say what I know to be the truth. So, uh, that, that's how I, uh, I regard it. Now, let's have a look. Um, there is a gentleman called Burke, uh, Donald S. Burke, who published a super article recently in one of the well-known scientific journals, and he got permission to do the following test. He got permission to test all the boys and girls who wanted to serve in the armed forces, the American armed forces, and got permission to do the Western Bloc test and one or two other tests for AIDS on all the people who wanted to have a health test done, you see, a checkup done, before they were accepted for service in your armed forces. So he published his results, and I'll give you them, and then you'll see where we are. He tested 306,061 uh, men and women who were wanting to serve in the armed forces and came forward for testing between 19, October 1985 and March 1986. That's the six months of the input to the American armed forces. Now these are taken just ad lib. They're taken ad hoc just as they came. No histories or anything like that taken. 460 were AIDS positive. That is, they'd had exposure to the AIDS virus. That is, there were 1.5 per thousand who were uh, AIDS positive. 1.5 in a thousand in a disease of this lethality is quite serious. And that was from 85, October 85 to March 86. Now, he found that black people were more likely to be infected than white ones and the Hispanics lay between the two. But now you've got to be very careful about statistics of this type. Otherwise you'll be saying that you're a moral racist or something like that. But nothing to do with that at all. The fact is this, that where the population is very heavy, there's a high density, so many men per acre or square mile of ground, there you get as the population rises in density, so you get more infection. Now that's what happens when you crowd. Uh, you're more likely to get passage of an infectious disease like this with an overcrowding. It's, uh, it's as simple as that. Now, the men were more likely to be infected than the women, so if you want to go in for uh, racial discrimination, you can say that discrimination between men and women there, so uh, nobody get onto my back my collar on that. Now, what they... Oh, you'd be surprised at things I'm told when they talk about things like this. You'd be absolutely surprised. 
the uh, next thing that is important is this, and I want you ladies and gentlemen to listen very carefully to this. They found that of those who were positive, that by careful questioning of the person who was positive, they found out that the incubation period was between one year and ten years. That is, you could be infected ten years ago and it would come out after ten years. That is, from the one year to the tenth year, you would be negative. You would have the virus in you and you would be infected. You would be able to infect your sexual partner. But you wouldn't know anything about it. That's the danger. And if you say, we're going to give your blood to a blood bank, and you've been infected, say, a year ago, and your blood was negative, if your blood was given in an operation to save somebody's life after bleeding, hemorrhaging in an operation, that person would get AIDS. Now, in England, it's such that 80% of the haemophiliacs, now you know what the haemophiliacs are, don't you? They're, they're bleeders. Those that mustn't uh, cut themselves or bruise themselves because they bleed. And they have to have a blood factor, factor 8, to stop the bleeding. Now, 80% of those poor people who had been receiving blood, which was HIV negative, 80% are AIDS ill now, AIDS infected, and will die. It came over the British radio just before we came away uh, to come to New Zealand. The leader, the president of the Haemophiliac Society, uh, has a son who is a haemophiliac, of course, and they just announced over the radio in hushed voices, that poor boy, 21 years old, condemned to death, he got it. Now, you see, if a person gets AIDS today, it doesn't mean that he's contracted it sexually at all. He's exchanged body fluids with somebody else, and this time through a bank, through a blood bank, and he's got it. The other way of doing it, without sex, is of course IV, intravenous drug abuse. If a person injects into his arm and then they pass the needle around you know one of them is infected with the AIDS virus they're all running the risk of getting it but the awful thing is that it doesn't come out necessarily until 10 years have passed now we've only had less than 10 years to see so we don't know if it'll come out in 50 or 20 years we've got no idea because we haven't got enough experience yet. But the danger is using unclean needles. Now, formerly, it was considered a very bad offence in the army, because I used to be a drug advisor to the American Labor Forces. It was an offence to let anybody come near a needle, because they were suspecting, you see, of using the needle to uh, drug abuse, going for drug abuse. What they're doing now because the danger is so acute of explaining, of passing on, exchanging the very small amount of blood which lies in the lumen 
on the AIDS virus. And that's why the drug abusers are a very, very great source of the sink which is necessary to keep the AIDS virus circulating in the general population without sex. The fourth one is the exchange of organs. If, say, a person has to have a, a kidney transplant, if that kidney is from a person who's got AIDS, and if that person, uh, even if he is negative, HIV negative, if there's any AIDS in him, you pass it on that way. So, exchanging of body fluids is the bad thing about this type of disease. That's where it comes from. Originally, it came from sex and promiscuous sex. Now, it doesn't. It's other thing. What body fluids have it once you've got it? Well, let me explain. First of all, when AIDS gets into the body, it's a retrovirus. That means it is a virus which contains the reverse transcriptase. That means it's a virus which has a single strand of RNA. Not DNA. RNA in a single strand. You see, the DNA is a double strand. This is a single strand. And the, when... Uh, Crick and Watson found out the structure of the DNA they said the universal rule of biology is that RNA goes to DNA goes to proteins that is the rule the information passes from the DNA down to the RNA and then that goes on to the protein and makes the specific proteins of which were made now it took an awful amount of resistance to bring out the fact that a retrovirus is an RNA virus, a single-stranded one, and that there is a reverse transcriptase enzyme which can transcribe the RNA molecule back to DNA. And then once it's in the DNA form, it splices itself into your DNA genome and it's a part of you and all your cells. Every cell that divides, which has the virus transcribed into DNA, splices itself into all the cells, RNA, the DNA cells of your body, and it's part of you. Now, if it's part of you, it's very difficult to kill it without killing you, you see. Uh, that's the difficulty of chemotherapy and vaccination against uh, this substance. It was Temin who found that out some years ago and he got the Nobel Prize right before it and uh, it took a lot of resistance because it was against the uh, idea of the central doctrine, the central dogma of um, biology that DNA always goes to RNA and RNA to proteins. It goes backwards in some cases. Now, there's another thing I must say about that before I go on. There's so much that I shall burst if I don't get it over to you tonight uh, uh, and I've got to give it in a form that won't cause you indigestion when you go to bed tonight uh, I hate to be guilty of all the nightmares you might get uh, ok let's, uh, let's carry on with this just a little bit further the disease 
once it's broken out, is 100% fatal as far as we know. Now, when you're positive, it was told, or it was taught, as recently as three months ago, that you could never reverse it to be negative. That is, once infected, you're infected for life, and you'll infect all your sexual partners or anybody that partakes your body fluids, uh, uh, if you exchange body fluids. Well, now, there has been just one case, two cases, I believe, a few cases anyway, of cases which were HIV positive, which have spontaneously reverted to negativity on the AIDS virus. Nobody knows why. Nobody knows why that the virus can sit in a person for up to eight, nine years and show no antibodies at all. Nobody knows what makes the thing in a, go into a restful hibernating state which is not uh, visible to the ordinary immune test. Uh, what one's hoping to do in research today find out the conditions which precipitate the sleeping virus in the body which is there but doesn't do anything to the body although you may pass it on to other people to find out the substances or the causes the environment which do that and then strengthen that with chemotherapy and all the rest so that you can suppress it in the person so he never gets the symptoms if you could do that you would have done a great thing but it's not very easy well we don't know what the cause of this is. Now I'm going to give you one or two um, statistics so that you know uh, just about where we are. I must say that first, it's very difficult to get hold of statistics because mostly they're unreliable. The doctors are afraid of reporting it because if they report anybody by name, they're discriminating. Well now, I've never known, you know, an infectious disease which it's criminal to report on, by name, except this one. I wonder why. But that's it. It's only recently that the Swiss now have forced every doctor to report anonymously the cases he's got. Until December, he didn't have to do that. So it's very difficult to get hold of the uh, reliable figures. In, I'll give you one or two that I have got reliable ones here. Uh, be careful there. In 1987, there were in the USA 38,000 people who were antibody positive. Uh, 38,000 in 1987 who were antibody positive. In 1991, one's reckoning with 270,000 antibody positive. Uh, in 1987, one, one was reckoning, calculating with one to two million people infected but without any signs of antibody. One to two million people infected but anonymously. In 1987, uh, there were in Scotland two new cases every month. Now, there is one new case every day. In 1991, there expecting that to have doubled on top of that. Now, in Frankfurt, in Germany, it's almost impossible to get figures, but I'll give you them, what I've got. This is a reliable one. Uh, in 
Frankfurt in Mine, in one of the main clinics there, they had 25 AIDS people dying. And they were looking after and waiting to take in 500 in the city of Frankfurt. Now I've got some more reliable ones. Very difficult to get hold of. 1983, there were 18 AIDS patients dying in Switzerland. In 1984, there were 40. In 1985, there were 100. In 1986, there were 192 dying of AIDS. And in 1987, there were just over 400 which were dying of AIDS. So you see, it's going off quite exponentially. Now, let's let me say a little word about the technical side and then I'll come on to the other sides which are uh, interesting for you. The AIDS virus attacks the T4 helper inducer lymphocytes and they're the substances, they're the cells which make the antibody. And therefore it attacks the means by which you protect yourself from attack. Now, they attack, the virus, the viruses attack only cells with the T4 group on them. There are lots of cells in the body that the AIDS virus won't attack. But if you put in the T4 molecule, then that becomes attackable by the virus. So obviously, if you could block the production of the T4 molecule, which is the receptor site, you'd be well on your way to getting um, treatment of, the, of the, the virus. Now, that'll be enough of the statistics there. I think, I don't know whether I'll talk to you about all these businesses up here. There's the genes and things which the virus has. There's the TAT gene and the TRS, ART gene and the SOR and the 3-ORF and the TAT and uh, TRS are necessary because you can activate them, you can stop the cell from getting uh, attacked. That's all technical stuff, but that's how the, uh, the research is going on to try and stop the virus from attacking people. Now, one virion, V-I-R-I-O-N, did I have it? Yes, I've got it up here. One virion uh, is sufficient, that is one particle of the uh, virus is sufficient to cause an infection. That's why people so fear this disease. Because normally if you're going to say get tuberculosis infection, you have to put a pretty large inoculum in to get it. You know, you have to have a massive dose, large number of cells in to, to get the disease. But Beale and Company, they say that it's one variant will do it and they've proved it fairly well. Now the size of it is 110 to 140 nanometers. Now you think how small that is. You could get 10,000 HIV viruses on one millimeter. Think how big one millimeter is. You get 10,000 viruses on it to give you one Marion. Now you'll find in the reports that have been sent around to your houses that the virus is unstable outside the body. That is if you get it on say a closet seat or say in a bathing pool on the wooden boards uh, it will die immediately. The figures show that 
the virus is stable outside the body in the dried or in the wet state up to 15 days, fully active. Now, on top of that, it's fairly stable for about an hour at 50 degrees centigrade. Now, that's one of the reasons, that's half the boiling point of water, uh, that's the reason why some people uh, say, you see, that the stuff is not attackable on the basis of social contact because it dies outside the body. There's plenty of evidence that it's quite a virile and stable sort of a substance. Now, that'll do as far as I need to go just there. Um, the next thing that I must do is this, that the virus itself, the AIDS virus, uh, replicates, uh, this is a nasty one, uh, it replicates a thousand times quicker than any other organism known to man. It's a thousand times quicker in replicating, multiplying, than any other organism, including the bacteria that we know of. It's enormous, the rate at which that goes off. Now, if the replication is very quick, think what that means. It means that the quickness usually makes errors in transcription. You go very quickly, you make errors when you type, don't you? Uh, these, when they replicate, make errors because it goes so quickly. Now, that means that you will get mutants in the AIDS virus. That is, when you start with one organism and it multiplies at this enormous rate, by the time you've let it go a day or two, you'll have hundreds of subcultures there of a different type of AIDS. So it's continually changing in its character by the rapid rate of mutation. That means that if the body takes, say, a day or two to produce antibodies, when the first dose of AIDS virus comes in, your antibodies will be produced. But by the time the antibodies are there, the original strain is gone. And so the target that you've made is missed. So that's probably the reason why you can't get an antibody to stop AIDS. It's changed by the time the antibodies can get to work. That's one of the great problems. Why? Even though you do have antibodies against AIDS, the AIDS is not stopped by the antibodies. Probably because they missed the target because the thing changes like a chameleon so quickly that you can't hit it. Um, that'll be enough for that little part, I think. Now, the next thing is this. There was an article appeared in Der Spiegel, which is sort of like your Time magazine in Germany, and they're rather sensational and all the rest of it. But they said, look, we are afraid of AIDS, but what we're really afraid of is the thing, if the thing mutates to produce new strains that have got wings, and wings were in the quotes. What they meant was this, AIDS normally isn't spread by coughing. You see, 
it doesn't go through membranes. It'll only go through wounds if you exchange the body fluids. Now, if your face is intact, there are no cuts on it, you could put quite a lot of AIDS virus, I wouldn't like to do it myself, but on your, <laughs> on your face, and uh, yet uh, your protection of your skin would probably be quite good. But what the Spiegel said was this, what about if the virus could suddenly become like a herpes virus or like the influenza virus, which is spreadable by droplet infection, say from coughing, okay? What about that? What about if mutation produced wings, in quotes? Well, no, these good gentry who wrote that article didn't know. It has already done so. You see, in San Francisco here, and this has been very carefully sat upon, in San Francisco here, they've got a, an outbreak of tuberculosis among homosexuals who've got AIDS. And they wanted to know why. Because these boys were obviously getting it because they got tuberculosis. Now it seems to turn out like this. That if you have the AIDS virus coupled with mycobacterium tuberculosis, when you've got tuberculosis, you produce droplet infections and people got to keep out of your way because they'll get it by a droplet infection, you'll swallow it, take it in through your nose, mouth, or tongue, whatever it is, and you get it that way. Well now, if the droplet infection of the AIDS virus, of uh, the AIDS virus with tuberculosis, goes into your mouth, the mycobacterium tuberculosis produces little wounds in the soft tissue of the lung. And if in those little wounds in the soft tissue of the lung, there's any AIDS virus, the AIDS virus will walk in. And it seems, this is right in the early stages of this work, it seems that social contact is perhaps not very dangerous if you've got just AIDS alone. But if you've got other diseases as well, then you may get trouble. Because any wound is a potential danger. Now, obviously, the doctors and the dentists who have to treat AIDS patients are furious about the sitting tight upon information like this. My daughter, our daughter, Petra, who is a dental surgeon, she is now privately forced by the dental institute where she works in the University of Heidelberg to wear full protection every time for fear of that. Because, you see, if they prick themselves with a needle, it's so easy to do when you're changing a needle on a syringe. So easy to do. If they do anything like that, you think of the danger. Now, normally speaking, if your skin's intact, there's not much trouble. But if you have any wounds, say your gums are bleeding and all the rest of it, think of what is known as a deep kiss. Do you call it that in American? Eh... <laughs> uh, they call it in German a tunkus, uh, <laughs> if that helps you at all. You know what I mean, don't you? And you think, you've got a person whose saliva is full of the AIDS virus. And exchanging the saliva, and say you've got bleeding teeth gums, bleeding gums for your teeth. Think what that's likely to do. 
And you think how dangerous that must be because you can't tell it might happen any time in ten years. So you'd have forgotten the deep kiss by that time, wouldn't you? Very difficult to carry out the work which is necessary to follow this virus because of its long incubation period. Now I'm going to give you one or two other details. What we're going to do about the therapy of the disease? Well, at the moment, there's no therapy which is effective in curing the disease. The disease is uh, universally uh, lethal. It takes about three years, in some cases, to kill, sometimes a little bit longer. Now, there are two methods, basically, for the therapy of the disease. One is to attack the virus itself, by chemotherapy, and the other one is to try to get the body to defend itself better by producing new um, uh, immune, uh, immune substances, antibodies, and all the rest of it which you might be able to get. Now, the substance which is used for chemotherapy to attack the virus has to be very specific because, as I say, the virus sits right in the human genome right in your chromosomes and it's so easy to kill you if you kill the virus so you can't get a differential toxicity easily that's the great difficulty because it sits right protected from everything right in the human um, genetic system but what they have done is this they found that when the substance the AIDS virus divides so quickly it needs lots and lots of synthetic materials to build up the virus. Lots of them. Huge amounts. Ten, a thousand times strong, uh, quicker than any other bacterium. So what they've done is they took thymine derivatives, which are necessary to make the nucleotides, and altered them just a little. So that the organism, when it needs these substances, we look over them roughly, you see, and think they're just about right. Well, of course, they don't think, but uh, the chemically, the stereochemical uh, chemical structure will be just about right, and it takes it in, but it's a spoof thymidine. And that is the substance they've used most. It's known as uh, azidothymidine, A-Z-T, or retrovir, or the new name for it is zido. Now, that substance is made from, from salmon and um, herring sperm. It's very expensive, but it's the only substance which is effective. The azido group on the thymidine just makes the compound a little bit off. It'll go in and then it blocks, jams up. It's like putting sand in the gearbox, you see. And uh, the stuff can't divide then, and the cell can't divide then as it ought to. Now, you, uh, this substance was found in 1860 and was used for cancer. But it caused so much anemia that they gave it up for cancer. You had to do so much blood transfusion. Now they tried it on AIDS and it certainly works with AIDS but the danger is it requires an enormous amount of blood transfusion because it stops your own blood being produced. So you've got to put the blood in somewhere. Now, the great difficulty today is get blood because everybody's afraid of taking blood samples because the HIV test is not enough and you can't 
kill selectively easily the HIV in the blood that you've got. If you could just heat the stuff up and kill the virus and not destroy the blood, okay, fine. But you see, the temperature required to do it is so high that you inactivate the blood at the same time, so you can't do it. So you've got to do a long, long history to be perfectly sure of every patient who gives you blood, every donor, to make sure that he hasn't had, and this is in your instructions to the blood bank, in the American instructions, you've got to inquire back 10 years whether he's had any homosexual contact. You've got to do that. And if he has, you don't say anything, but you quietly put his blood away. Don't use it. One of the consequences is that as the AIDS patients being treated with zidovudaki, avubudin, require so much, yes, it's a horrible name, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) As they require so much blood, blood's getting more expensive and more expensive, that the limiting factor in the ability to treat these patients, it doesn't cure them. It just prolongs their life, gives them some quality of life for a bit longer. But you have to give them so much blood that the nursing costs about 40% more than the nursing of any other patient. Now, the treatment for with uh, this AZT, the treatment is, uh, I'll give you some figures here, it costs to treat a patient with AZT it costs between $8,000 and $10,000 to treat him up to his death with that medicament. And he has to be treated 24 hours a day. He's got to have it put into him all the time to have any effect. So he's on that until he dies. And it costs, just for the medicament alone, up to $10,000, $8,000 to $10,000. Now they require twenty. 5% more, uh, 25% higher cost to treat an AIDS patient over all other patients. They need 40% more nursing care than any other patient. Um, the blood transfusion for a patient unto his death, up to his death, costs $75,000, just blood transfusions alone per patient to his death. And uh, in the USA, in 1986, the disease cost one billion US dollars in 1986. In 1991, we're reckoning with 8.5 billion dollars for AIDS patients and we're reckoning with, we had in 1986, 32,000, and 1991, we're reckoning will cost 2.3 billion US dollars. The loss of productivity and the extra work and 
the uh, other circumstances associated with AIDS will cost, and were budgeted for, in 1991, 66 billion US dollars per year. 19, that's 1991, 66 billion dollars have been budgeted for per year. Now, I don't think I ought to say much more about that side, just let's look at one other side. Let's have a look at the physiological side to get ourselves straight. Um, if a person practices what I read out in Deuteronomy uh, and in Genesis, that is, a male lies with a male, the sperm go into the rectum. Now, the rectum is not made for friction. It's a very thin membrane. And there are wounds, trauma, caused by the use of the rectum as a, a vagina. The result is that you get a massive injection of foreign protein into the rectum, which is usually damaged. If the rectum itself isn't damaged, there are usually hemorrhoids there, which are. And if the sphincter muscle, the circular muscle around the rectum, is forced open, as it is in such cases, then you get wounds there. And you get a massive injection through these three sources of trauma, massive injection of foreign protein from the seminal fluid going into the body. Now the result of this, ladies and gentlemen, physiologically, is quite simple and predictable. It means that the immune system is being confronted right in the circulatory system with large amounts of foreign protein. And that means the immune system's got to neutralize them. So the immune system is stressed to the extreme by that. Now if you stress the immune system regularly like that, say four or five, eight, nine, ten times a night, like that, you will find, and doctors will confirm it, if they're up in these things, that the dysfunction of the immune system in the homosexual starts before the AIDS virus because of this natural process of neutralizing the massive injection of foreign protein where they shouldn't be. Now, the same thing happens in fellatio, which is oral sex. If there are wounds in the mouth or if there are wounds in the stomach, say, what ulcers or anything like that, your immune system is confronted suddenly and often with large amounts of foreign proteins which you have to deal with. And so you will find that homosexuals, as a rule, due to their dysfunction of their immune system, even without AIDS, are subject to parasites of all kinds, which an ordinary person can deal with easily, but they can't. They'll get parasites from their pets, worms, and things like that from dogs and from other household pets. Normally we can deal with them because the immune system's in order. 
But to say that homosexuality is a viable alternative for sex is just a physiological untruth. It isn't true. And that's what's propagated on us. And therefore they say, carry on with your homosexuality as long as you have safer sex. Now, yes, yes, that's what they're teaching you. Now remember this, that every medical student knows that the use of a condom is not 100% sure, just over 90%. Because condom, especially if certain lubricants are used, are not non-porous. And if they're not non-porous, then of course you get the same effect. Now as a result of that, to play with a disease which is lethal, I think to the extent of 90% security, it is madness myself. Don't you? I think it is. With a disease like that, why don't, uh, why don't people say it? The reason why don't people say it is perfectly clear. It's an ideological question which has been precipitated by the permissive society. And if you say anything against the permissive society, you're going to get into trouble. And the permissive society has precipitated this, and therefore use all the other little tricks you see, which you can, to get round the grand error of wiping away all the taboos which the good Lord gave us to protect us. You see, he gave us an instruction manual like Cadillac gives you when they sell you a new car. And one of the things about a Cadillac manual is it's pretty good to protect their reputation by preventing you from abusing it. Now, if you were to perhaps hitch your Cadillac onto a plough and go and plough the fields with it, and then after a year, you would go and claim your guarantee that the back axle was gone, the transmission was gone, everything else was gone, and they found out what you'd been doing, they certainly wouldn't pay you. Because they say, we told you what the conditions are to use that machine properly. Now, our machine is a biological machine, infinitely superior to any mechanical machine we ever made. And God told us how to use it. He made the machine for a certain purpose. And the sexuality he gave us is very strong. Now I look at the Cadillac and see what it's designed for. And I look at our body and see what it's designed for. You know it's designed like a von Neumann machine to sprout little machines. It is. There's no argument about it. It's not only designed for thoughts, but it is designed to sprout quite a number of little machines. Now, ladies and gentlemen, why did God do that? Well, Cadillacs were interested in giving you a machine that would be useful for the purposes for which they made it. Why did God make us like he did? Why has he made us with that super strong tendency towards sex. Why has he done that? Well, he said so. He told Adam and Eve to proliferate themselves and fill the earth. Why did he do that? Did he want overcrowding? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so, ladies and gentlemen. 
You see, God's purposes are eternal. We have come down from eternity into time to have time to repent and get like Jesus. That's what we were sent here for. Because after Adam, we weren't like Jesus anymore. We weren't like the Son of God. But he sent us into time so that we have time to get back again. Now, in this time, God is wanting to populate the heaven of the heaven with his sons and daughters who are human beings. You are made in God's image. So am I. And our purpose is to get like Jesus so that we can rule and reign with him forever. And that doesn't mean only in time and space. So what he's asked for is for us to have the 70 or 80 years or whatever we have here so that we have time to be changed into the image of Christ. And when he comes, he says he's going to transform us with a new body into his image to be with him where he is. He says that his present occupation, Jesus' occupation, is making the resurrection bodies it's translated wrongly in the English Bible. It says the mansions. And nobody's, everybody thinks of a country farmhouse, you see, and then they're quite, uh, they're quite satisfied with that. It doesn't mean that at all. What it means is the tent, the body in which I live. My present body is mortal. It's going to fall to pieces. But God is going to clothe me upon with an eternal body. Now, what are we doing with God's eternal purpose? He's got the whole universe to fill, the heaven of the heavens, the paradise of God, to be where Jesus is, to rule and reign with him forever. He's wanting as many brains and as many minds like him as he can get. And what are we doing? In Germany, they killed off last year in a mother's womb 400,000. They've killed more babies in England than England has lost in two world wars. And those poor little aborted babies have never had the chance of learning to know Jesus, get to know him, and be fitted for the resurrection body. And therefore the abuse of the sexual tendency that we have is an abuse of the purpose of God to clothe the universe with little Christ. That's what we're here for. So don't let us abuse our bodies because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. We'll pray together. Thank thee, Lord Jesus, that thou hast wonderfully made us. We ask thee that thou mightest bless us by understanding ourselves and thy purpose that we may be truly changed into thine image. We ask thee to enlighten our minds that we may serve thee better all the days of our life that we might be transformed stepwise, stagewise, into thine image by thinking of thy purposes and doing them. So bless us all tonight. Amen.